The United States calls China a rising power because rising powers disturb equilibria. China calls itself a returning power or a resurgent power because it believes that current trend lines are not disrupting the status quo, but rather that they're simply restoring the historical status quo in which the Asia-Pacific was the world's center of gravity and China in turn was the center of, of that center of gravity. One of the lessons that China took from the Taiwan Straits crisis of 95-96, they, they it, was, it, was, uh, it was humiliating for them. Uh, you know, they had some designs on Taiwan and the, the Clinton administration sent two aircraft carrier groups through the Taiwan Straits and the Chinese immediately had to buckle. And I don't know that China, China envisions that it could win an out-out naval confrontation with the United States, but it wants, to make, it wants to make the U.S. Navy think a little bit harder about intervening militarily. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and in this episode, I sit down for a conversation with Ollie Wine. Ollie is currently a policy analyst at the Rand Corporation, and really one of the most insightful observers of China and the Indo-Pacific region more broadly, as well as how grand strategy, both U.S. and Chinese, plays out in the region. I'm also happy to say he is a non-resident fellow with the Modern War Institute. During our conversation, he addresses really important questions like how we should conceptualize the shrinking power gap between the United States and China, and what it pretends for the future. In addition, as you'll hear, for all of the focus on China in U.S. policy and analytical circles, there are still a lot of things very much open to debate, things we don't and perhaps can't yet understand about China and its future trajectory as a U.S. competitor. Before we get to the conversation, a couple notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. Ollie Wine, thanks so much for joining this episode of the MWI podcast. Uh, before we get started, I wonder if you can kind of give listeners a little bit of background. You're at RAND now, correct? Yeah, well, th first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I'm a policy analyst at the RAND Corporation now. I've been in the uh, the think tank space for some time. So my, my first job out of college was at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Then I spent a few years working as a researcher at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Came back to D.C., had some... Uh, some miscellaneous stints uh, here and there in, in the think tank space. I uh, went to graduate school uh, to get my master's, and now I'm working full-time at RAND. And the areas that you sort of focused on in your career and, and um, you know, as a scholar, as a writer, um, as a policy analyst, is a lot of Asia stuff, China stuff, but also some sort of grand strategy. Um, what kind of led you in that direction? The, the trajectory was somewhat... I would say some, I don't know if I would say serendipitous is the right word, but it was, it certainly wasn't planned. I remember, so when I started college, uh, I started college in 2004, and for many people who were starting, who were majoring in political science or, or, or making a foray into political science in the years after 9-11, uh, they were studying the, the nexus of terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. And so when I started college, my thought was that, so I began taking courses on terrorism, on WMDs, on the intersection, and... What happened was that as I was, as my time at college was progressing, I just started to feel 
more and more of a disconnect between uh, what you could say maybe a kind of the a myopic focus on terrorism and WMDs that I was studying in class and some of the larger strategic undercurrents that were percolating. So between 2004 and 2008, I mean, I remember, it just just as a little bit of context, I remember in 2004 when when, pe- when observers would talk about China, which is the, the country whose dynamics I'm principally uh, interested in now, uh, they would often talk about it uh, in the con. They would lump it in with the other so-called BRICS, so you know, Brazil, Russia, uh, India, then China, and then now South Africa. And they would say that you know, China is it's growing rapidly, but it's it's an emerging power that we can that we can lump in with others. And so they would you would often read articles and books about Chindia, so a, a joint China India economic axis. By two thousand eight. Uh, many observers would say that sure, China still it's 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 not a superpower in its own right, but it's it's a different and it's in a different class of emerging power, and it it behooves us to think about China separately uh, from from the rest of the BRICS. And so between two thousand four and two thousand eight, China really uh, China really made a a a serious foray onto the world stage, and then in two thousand eight, of course. You have the Beijing Olympics, which is kind of you know Beijing's coming out party on the international stage, uh, and then you have the financial crisis, and so I would say that so first it was just I felt that in order for me to be uh, a serious consumer of trends in in world affairs, that it behooved me to study one of one of the main drivers of of trends in world order, namely China's resurgence, and then. That, that suspicion. So I started doing outside of coursework. I started just independently doing reading and, and research on China. And that hunch that I should study China, I think, was, was kind of confirmed by 2008, the financial crisis, uh, the Olympics, and the rest is history. So let's talk about uh, China a little bit then. Sure. Uh, you've written quite a bit about, you mentioned the world order, um, China's rise. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this sort of notion that uh, China is a rising power. The U.S. is a declining power, at least relatively speaking. Um, I guess my first question is is maybe kind of a, a, a basic one, but what are the metrics that, that we should be using or, you know, what metrics are being used, but what are the ones that we should be using to really measure that? Because it's this really sort of uh, intangible thing, right? Yeah. I've struggled with this. It's, I mean, this question that you've asked is is, I think, one of the most not only one of the most vexing questions, but also not surprisingly, one of the most important questions for political scientists, for scholars of international relations. And it is a question that, I should say, it's a question that I not only struggle with now, but I find myself increasingly struggling with. And the reason is that, I mean, as you said, power is intangible. I think that power is becoming more complicated. I think that the sources of power are becoming more numerous. And there isn't any, at least in my judgment, there isn't any single metric for gauging whether or not a, a power is... I mean, there are certain metrics that, that come to mind. So which, which country has the, uh, uh, the world's most powerful you know, armed forces? Which country has the world's largest economy? So there are some crude metrics that, that, that are, I guess, proxies for superpowerdom. Uh, but the reason that I say that it's complicated to gauge power is that... So, Take the, take as a, as as, a, uh, as an example, uh, economic heft. So we often hear, and there's this kind of incessant speculation, particularly in in this town, about when China's economy will overtake America as an absolute size, and is it more 
appropriate to measure China's uh, economy at market exchange rates or purchasing power parity. But whatever metric you use, whether you use purchasing power parity, whether you use market exchange rates, uh, even if China's growth rate slows considerably, it, it stands to reason that whether it's 10 years from now, 20 years from now, at some point, uh, China's economy will eclipse America's in overall size. And so some observers, some observers believe that that shifting of the guards would inaugurate China as the world's preeminent power. But then you look back historically, uh, look at the power transition between uh, the United Kingdom and the United States. So the United States, uh, I would say most, most observers would say that the United States wasn't the world's preeminent power until the aftermath of the Second World War. But the United States had supplanted Britain in economic size in the late 19th century. And so you have this, this puzzle. So how is, and Fried Zakria talks about this puzzle or addresses this puzzle in his first book. He says that how is it, or what explains, what explains the reality that even though the United States had become the world's most powerful industrialized nation in the late 19th century, um, it still remained pretty parochial in its outlook, and it didn't actually assume superpower responsibilities until several decades later. And so I give that example just to say that when China, and I, I shouldn't say if, when I think China's economy becomes the world's largest, doesn't necessarily mean it's a world superpower. Similarly, with, with overall military expenditures, even if, even if China were to spend at some point more on national defense in the United States, uh, we have to look at the sophistication of those capabilities. We have to look at the concentration of those capabilities. So my sense right now is that while China is indeed investing very heavily in its military modernization and primarily in anti-access area denial capabilities, and while its power projection capabilities are growing, they still are trained for the most part in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, China still uh, is nowhere near having the kind of capacity that the United States does to project power and project power globally uh, uh, and in- instantaneously. So it's a very long-winded answer, but it's it's a way of saying it's not clear to me that historians a generation hence or two generations hence, will be able to point to a discrete moment of transition and say that on this day, for this reason, China replaced the United States as the world's preeminent power. And um, as you can tell by my <laughs> rambling, convoluted answer, I still am struggling very much with how to conceptualize power, how to conceptualize influence. But I do think that one of the the principal charges for political scientists and scholars of international relations and not only vis-a-vis the U.S.-China relationship, but just more generally in appraising world order, will be to to refine their conceptions of power and influence. And I hope that in in, in due course I might be able to add a penny or two to that conversation, but I still am very much uh, in the process of learning and absorbing. It's an interesting parallel, isn't it? Um, there's a, there's there's... How, there's the power that you have, which is difficult to measure, and then there's what you do with it and what you want to do with it. And so if, so the U.S. was for half a century reluctant to take up that mantle. Um, China, in, in probably different ways, also is demonstrating a certain reluctance. Um, what do you think China wants to do with its power? If it does have, you know, it's building aircraft carriers, not doesn't have nearly as many as the U.S., and it's not going to for, for a long, long time. Um, it's, you know, it, it is building an ability to protect force, even though its defense expenditures are overwhelmingly oriented on, on on defensive really capabilities um but as it does that if it, as it starts to reach out and and kind of touch other parts of the world um with different tools that it has the resources to develop what does it want so a, a, a shameless plug uh, i recently actually convened a 
a Chinophile roundtable uh, just a few weeks ago on this very question, and basically inviting a number of scholars, both American and Chinese, to try and illuminate. Well, first of all, the, the question was, to what extent to what extent can observers discern China's long-term foreign policy objectives, and to the extent that we can, what are they? Uh, now, I mean, a few a few starting points. One, it's leaving China aside, but it, just take rising or resurgent power X and you know, fill in the blank, and, and we can come to China in a minute. But it's natural that any rising or resurgent power will, in due course, have more ambitious objectives as your economy grows, uh, your military power grows, and you you have a gr- either a greater, need, a greater need and or desire to expand your your global presence in parallel. So it's not surprising that, that China is becoming more ambitious in its in its foreign policy, that it's investing in its military modernization. Uh, but with that, with that stipulation, I, it's not clear to me, well, there, there's several, there's several areas of, of, I would say several areas of uncertainty or several points of uncertainty. The first is, it isn't clear to me that even the Chinese leadership knows exactly what, what its long-term goals are. And I, and I, I, I make that, I render that, that judgment for a number of reasons. Um, I don't think the Chinese leaders could have anticipated even 10 or 15 years ago, certainly not at the turn of the century, um, how dramatically their resurgence, uh, how, how significantly they would have grown, especially economically and technologically, in such a short period of time. And so when you are, and, and there's a gap between, a, a pretty pronounced gap right now between the the sheer raw power that China has accumulated and the sophistication of its foreign policy apparatus. When you absorb so much power over such a short duration of time, you, uh, you're kind of, you've sort of struggled to know what to do with it. And so it's not clear to me. We, 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 often, uh, we often ascribe to China this, uh, this 4D chess mentality that it, it, it thinks 10 years ahead, 50 years ahead. But it, it's cl- I think it's pretty clear if you look at some of the backlash to the Belt and Road Initiative, it, if you look at China's, uh, really, its, it's inability to, uh, to, to reflect honestly on its human rights record, uh, that China is, uh, it's stumbling. Uh, now, it's learning. I shouldn't say that it's stumbling and, and it's, it's stumbling and collapsing, but it's, it's going to stumble along the way. It's going to learn. It's going to adjust. And so I, I think that China is, is kind of trying to feel its way into the world. I don't know that it necessarily has um, some 50 or 100 year grand strategy for achieving global preeminence. And actually, if China were to, were to have such a, a 50 or, or 100 year strategy, I, I would I would charge them with with a, a a certain level of hubris because what we what we see is that geopolitical flux is is accelerating at such a pace that frankly even even six month plans or one year plans don't really uh, often hold up. Um, so one, I, I I'm not sure if China has this this overarching plan. If they do, I, I think that the, you know one could one could charge them with with a certain level of hubris and naivete. Um, do they want to? Do they want to? Oh, let, let's, but, but let's let's take let's take sort of a spectrum of, of, of potential futures. At one end of the spectrum, you have observers who continue to hew to the proposition that China is principally an inwardly focusing society. That to the extent that it has an ambitious foreign policy, it reflects the need to uh, to sustain a six or seven percent growth rate for one point four billion people. The need to address China's domestic imperatives, and so one. 
at, at one end of the spectrum, you have people who say, look, China doesn't have some overarching grand strategy. It's really just about fulfilling domestic imperatives. Then moving further along the spectrum, you have certain observers who contend that China's not interested in global preeminence, but it's interested merely in restoring its primacy within the Asia-Pacific. And of course, uh, China, with its long historical memory, uh, for, for many centuries, it was accustomed to a Sinocentric hierarchy in the Asia-Pacific. And China believes, interestingly, China believes, and this is why it's important to distinguish between rising and resurgent, the United States calls China a rising power because rising powers disturb equilibria. China calls itself a returning power, a resurgent power, because it believes that current trend lines are not disrupting the status quo, but rather that they are simply restoring the historical status quo in which the Asia-Pacific was the world's center of gravity and China, in turn, was the center of, of that center of gravity. So that's, that's another postulation, that China, it wants to restore its primacy in the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, to use the current parlance, but no more. But then there are others who say that China, I mean, if you look at Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping uh, said before the 19th Party Congress that he looks forward to an era in which China will move closer to center stage in world affairs. But center stage is a, it's kind of a somewhat ambiguous term. Center stage could mean, does it mean he seeks a G2 condominium? Does it mean that he seeks unipolarity? So there's, there are a number of interpretations of the term. Uh, but I, I would say, so I would say that there are a number of plausible interpretations for what China seeks to do. It's not clear to me that China, that the Chinese leadership has a clear sense necessarily of what it seeks to do. Even So China, yes, I think that the Chinese leadership certainly wants China to to, uh, to occupy a greater, greater role within the post-war order. It wants China's economy to continue flourishing. It wants to expand its commercial footprint. But trying to distill those various vectors of effort into a single overarching objective, it, it seems to me to be a, a, a fraught undertaking. Uh, but one, one final point, because I know that I, I've been uh, somewhat rambling here, but one final point that I would make, I'm a little bit skeptical, even though, even though China is, is growing along multiple dimensions, its, its military is modernizing rapidly, it is, uh, it's demonstrating a very significant capacity for in indigenous innovation when it comes to frontier technologies, its economy is, is growing apace. Um, I'm skeptical of the notion, or I'm skeptical of the utility of power transition theory in terms in bearing on the U.S. in terms of bearing on U.S.-China power dynamics, and the reason is that power transition theory stipulates that whether through whether through violent means or through peaceful means, we will have a sort of a, a, a discrete a discrete sort of shifting of the guards, uh, or, a, or a discrete sort of changing changing of the guards, in which we will be able to say, you know. A resurgent power has definitively taken over, it's undergirding a global order, and it has replaced uh, the formerly preeminent power. But what I see happening now, and I, and I, I, I hasten to note that I'm speculating here, uh, but my speculation is that we're unlikely to see a neat, discrete power transition between the two countries. What I envision is more a fluid, tense, indefinite cohabitation, and, and here's why I, I render that speculation. I do think it's true that the United States is, in certain respects, stepping back from the responsibilities that it has traditionally assumed for undergirding a global order. But I don't see that China is necessarily chomping at the bit to supplant the United States in occupying that current capacity. If you look at Chinese foreign policy, it remains very, it's very ambitious and increasingly ambitious, but it remains parochial in its objectives. It's very much focused on advancing the Chinese national interest. It's not really focused on provisioning 
or furnishing global public goods, addressing humanitarian disasters, thinking about the global interest. It's it's focused on China's domestic imperatives. And I'm not, and I'm not saying and I and I'm I say so not to cast aspersions on what China's doing, but just to suggest that I believe that the Chinese leadership feels that trying to replace the United States in its present capacity would impose an intolerable strain on its resources, resources that it needs to devote to its domestic imperatives. So what I envision is a situation in which the United States perhaps lacks some of the willingness to assume some of its traditional responsibilities, steps back a little bit from its position undergirding a global order, but its putative replacement doesn't necessarily fill the vacuum. And uh, this is what uh, Professor Joseph Nye refers to as a potential Kindleberger trap. So the, the famous, uh, the late and famous MIT economist Charlie Kindleberger postulated that one of the reasons that the Great Depression lasted for as long as it did and then paved the way for World War II was that in the interwar period, the world's preeminent power at the time, the United Kingdom, it it was starting to retreat from some of its responsibilities, and it lacked the the willingness to underpin a global economic system. But its putative replacement, the United States, which by that time had far surpassed the United Kingdom in overall uh, economic heft, uh, still didn't have the capacity. It was still primarily uh, inward-looking and didn't have the capacity to undergird a global order. So you had a kind of vacuum. And so the world order was suspended between a preeminent power and and a rising one. So I think that there is a possibility for a variant of the Kindleberger trap in the U.S.-China scenario. So I, I think I would say that right now it's not clear to me what, what China's long-term objective is, uh, but I, I, I'm worried about the potential for a kind of Kindleberger trap in which the world is suspended between a still preeminent power that is no longer as willing to undergird a global order and a resurgent power, putative replacement, uh, that lacks the uh, the capacity and or willingness to do so. You know, there's when you think about things like um, China seeking to at some point say have its currency displace the U.S. dollar as you know this sort of global benchmark currency um, would something like that would bring China a lot of advantages, but that those advantages also go hand in hand with requirement to say play a bigger role in promoting the WTO and or championing the WTO, which obviously that's sort of a a strange scenario to to imagine China being sort of the um, you know at the, sitting at the head of the table in the, in the WTO. If that happens, if there is a sort of um, retrenchment, say on 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 in the U.S. Um, pulling back somewhat, uh, China doesn't step in to fill it. There is some sort of a vacuum. Could that be a stable situation? Are we are we are we at risk of looking at sort of? our current unipolar moment, the bipolarity of, of World War II, and saying, no, you have to have a certain amount of global power that has to be either owned by some one, one, uh, one country, one power, or shared, you know, discreetly between two or more or something. In that case where there's seemingly power left on the table, you know, things that, are, that go along with that left on the table that nobody takes up, could that, could that potentially be stable or is that inherently instable? It's another, it, and this is, it's another very important uh, debate. And I think that one of the enduring, one of the enduring debates in political science and in international relations scholarship centers on the stability of unipolar systems versus versus multipolar systems. Uh, but I would I would make two, just two quick observations, and and not to not to evade your question, but but to to help just to help myself think through the question. Um, I've always been. I've always been a little bit skeptical of the the presumption that the United States or that we ever occupied a 
or inhabited a truly unipolar system. I think it's fair to say that the United States, after, particularly after the end of the, the Cold War, was undoubtedly the world's preeminent power, and its principal antagonist for the better part of half of a century Im- imploded in quite spectacular fashion. But even, even in the even in the 19, uh, at least when I think of unipolar, when I think of unipolarity, and perhaps there, there's a, a debate to be had about, uh, am I conf- conflating the terms unipolarity and hegemony? But at least when I think of unipolarity, I imagine a situation in which a power can largely sort of orchestrate world affairs on its own. It can impose its will on others. It can essentially unilaterally direct the course of world affairs. But the United States has never, uh, even at its in its its heyday of power, has never had that capacity. And I actually, I would say that one of the one of the enduring uh, illusions to which I think the U.S. foreign policy establishment and or sometimes the the U.S. public has subscribed to is this pretension to omnipotence. Uh, there is a, a very powerful essay that I often think of in this situation uh, by. Uh, he was a Scottish historian, Denis Brogan, and he writes an essay in the December 1952 issue of Harper's Magazine called The Illusion of American Omnipotence. And now in the 1950s, you know, we we often look back and we say in the immediate aftermath of World War II, the United States exercised hegemony. But, but Denis Brogan points out, and if you look at the 1950s, so just consider what happens in, in, the, in the few years after World War II. The United States loses loses its atomic monopoly. Uh, we lose China; it goes communist. Uh, and I, I sometimes wonder if, 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 if two events of that magnitude had happened in an era of social media, people would have say, people would say that the United States is hurtling towards oblivion. Uh, then, in the in the 1950s, we have in 1957 we have the launch of Sputnik. Then we have the Cuban Missile Crisis. We have the Bay of Pigs. We have uh, we get bogged down in Indochina. We have a stalemate in the Korean War. So there are a number of developments in the post-war era that even though the United States was very powerful, uh, cast doubt on this notion that it could unilaterally pull the strings. And similarly, in the, in, the, uh, in the 1990s and 2000s, there were many developments that ran counter to U.S. national interests. So, so I guess one, one point that's somewhat tangential to your, to your question, but I think is nonetheless important, is that I, I think that we should question the notion that the United States has ever been, has occupied an ever truly unipolar system or that it, it, it has wielded as much uh, influence. Uh, so that's, that's point one. On the second point, I mean, I, there are, there's a wide-ranging debate, and I think there are very compelling arguments on both sides about whether a unipolar system is more intrinsically more stable than a balance of power system. Uh, my own, and, and I, I go back and forth depending on which which author I'm 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 reading. There are very you know convincing scholars on both sides. I guess I would almost say that while the question is while the question is analytically very stimulating and it's very interesting, I would say that prescriptively it's almost a moot question. And the reason I say that is I don't see how I, I don't know that the United States necessarily has well, if, if the United States is being prudent, I don't know that it has a choice, any choice but to negotiate the contours of a new world order with countries that believe that they have suffered the indignity of U.S. preeminence for too long. I don't see how the United States will be. Now, the United States does have a choice. We always have agency, but I think certain choices are, are, are strategically wiser than others. So the United States could make a decision that it is less interested in sustaining the post-war order then it is narrowly about sustaining its own level of preeminence. How do we freeze and amber the current strategic 
balance where and the current level of U.S. preeminence. It could make that decision. I think that that decision would be unwise. Um, so the real challenge is uh, where and when does the United States decide to accommodate certain Chinese preferences, certain perhaps Russian preferences? But I should say that the, the, the desire for a more multipolar order we often focus about a resurgent China and a revanchist Russia, but the desire for a more multipolar order is 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 a pretty a pretty widespread desire, and and it's it's a desire that's shared even by many longstanding allies and friends. And so, I, I think that the United States will have no choice but to, um, if it is interested in a stable world order, I think that the United States. I can imagine a situation in which the United States indefinitely remains the world's single most powerful and influential country, but its relative margin of preeminence declines. And the cent- one of the central imperatives of statecraft in this century and, and, and potentially beyond will be negotiating the contours of a more sustainable world order, one that is one that recognizes the centrality of American power, but is accommodating to and recognizing of resurgent powers, recognizing uh, of the grievances of countries that say, why should we be beholden to a system that we played little to no role in designing? So it's a complicated question. I myself have, again, haven't sort of come down definitively on one side or the other about whether a unipolar system is more stable than a multipolar one. But I, I just think the reality is that we are headed towards a more multipolar system, and the United States can either shape that, can either ride that wave and try to shape those currents, or it can resist them. I, I hope it opts. I hope that it opts to try and shape those currents rather than resisting the, the resisting uh, structural forces that are at work, but it remains to be seen. So let's zoom in a little bit on uh, on the Asia Pacific region or in Indo Pacific, mm. as you said, is mm. is the is the more current term. Uh, if we zoom in on that region and and look at China's objectives regionally, China obviously has an interest on the Korean Peninsula, um, uh, you know, uh, in in the South China Sea. There's some of the areas. Where else? What is it? What is it that China wants beyond sort of you know the platitudes that you often hear about them wanting to be a, sort of a regional hegemon, mm-hmm. um, so to speak? What are what are China's interests in the region? I think that my sense is that China. So a number of objectives. I think that China wants to. I think that China wants to st- continue strengthening its. Uh, trading and investment relationships in in the Asia Pacific, uh, and particularly in light of trade tensions between trade, and I would really say technological tensions between the United States and and China that are ongoing. I think that China wants to to wean itself off of the United States as much as possible. Now, it's, I, I should say, in what sense? It wants to. I I think it looks at. I think that China regards the Trump administration's current. Uh, protectionist policies as essentially just being a more uh, sort of candid admission of longstanding U.S. policy, whether or not whether or not that assessment is correct. But I think China looks at the Trump administration and says, "Look, we don't like what the Trump administration is doing, but they essentially have clarified that the United States wants to constrict China's further economic resurgence." And so, if you look at pr- prior to, prior to the arrival of the Trump administration, uh, China had already been. Trying to wean its not wean itself off, but China had, had steadily been trying to reduce its dependence on on the U.S. economy. It recognized the virtues of interde- interdependence with the United States, and and economic interdependence has has been a ballast of 
of the U.S.-China relationship over the past 40 years uh, since the U.S. opening to China, particularly since China's accession to the World Trade Organization. But China said that if we want to uh, continue, our, if we want to sustain our economic growth, we have to increasingly rely on indigenous con consumption, indigenous innovation. And so if you look at the data, China had been gradually reducing its reliance on the U.S. economy. But I think that now China will want to accelerate that shift. Uh, China looks at the Trump administration and says that we we depend too much on we depend too much on the United States to supply us with the high tech inputs that are going to be necessary for us to achieve Made in China 2025, for China to become a self-sustaining, advanced manufacturing superpower. And so, what had been a gradual reduction, what I think that what had been a gradual reduction in China's dependence on the U.S. economy, I suspect, will now become a much more proactive uh, and and vigorous effort. And so, I would say one is. China is thinking about how can it, um, how can it find alternative suppliers of high-tech inputs, um, alternative uh, just suppliers of inputs more generally, so that it can reduce its reliance on reduce its reliance on the United States. And and I should make a point. And I, I know that I'm 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 digressing a little bit, but I'll, I'll get back to to what I think are China's objectives in the region. But I, I think a quick digression. Um, I think that. What I worry about with, with the Trump administration's current policy it's, is that while I believe it will cause China some short-term headaches, because I mean, it, it's, it's, clear, it's clear from China's reaction that China did not anticipate that the Trump administration would actually go through with imposing tariffs. I think that they believed up until the Trump administration announced the first tranche of tariffs that perhaps the administration was bluffing, maybe it was just it was employing some tough rhetoric to try to to, to shake the Chinese up a little bit, but they didn't anticipate that the administration would actually go through. So they were caught off guard. And it's clear that with some of the restriction, with some of the growing concern about and restrictions on uh, telecommunications companies such as ZTE and Huawei, China recognizes that it is facing, it's facing constraints, uh, protectionist constraints. It's facing restrictions on the expansion of some of its telecommunications companies. And so China recognizes that it's, it's in a tough spot, and I think that China is preparing itself for a, uh, a, a slight deceleration of its economic growth. It's preparing itself for a pretty uh, sustained period of time in which it will have to go through a pretty difficult process of rerouting uh, suppliers, and it's not going to be able to replace the United States overnight. I mean, I, if I remember the figure correctly, I think that the United States at present accounts for something on the order of 80% of China's high-tech inputs. You're not going to be able to find a supplier or suppliers to replace 80% of your high-tech inputs overnight. My concern, though, is that while China may experience some short-term economic headwinds as it tries to find alternative suppliers, as it tries to wean itself off of the United States economically and technologically, that perhaps 15 years hence, 20 years hence, the United States will confront a China that is not only much larger in the aggregate, but is also much more economically independent and resilient. And if we think that the China challenge is formidable now, imagine how much imagine how much more formidable the China challenge will be if economic if China no longer feels constrained by or beholden to economic interdependence with the United States. It's much larger economically in the aggregate it has essentially substituted for the United States economically, that China would be far more, would be far more for, formidable. And so that's why I fear that when we, there's a certain you know, schadenfreude in the United States when we look at some of China's current economic woes, but I think that there's a risk that we may win a Pyrrhic victory 
that that seems compelling in the short run, but in the long run, we realize that we actually accelerated uh, China's uh, economic resurgence and made it more independent. But that that was that was something of a digression. But so goal number one, I think, is is continue to cement its economic centrality within the Asia Pacific, wean itself off of the United States, and I think that it wants to use. I think it wants to make it more. It wants to make the U.S. military, and particularly the U.S. Navy, uh, think a little bit harder before it operates in the in the Asia Pacific, you know, within the within the first island chain. Um, one of the lessons that China took from the Taiwan Straits crisis of ninety five ninety six, they they were it was it, it was uh, it was humiliating for them. Uh, in they they were you know they had some designs on Taiwan and the. The Clinton administration sent two aircraft carrier groups through the Taiwan Straits, and the Chinese immediately had to buckle. And while the Taiwan Straits crisis was not the only precipitant of China's military modernization, it certainly was one of them. And so I think that China, you know, China recognizes that still the, the gap between U.S. military power and Chinese military power is vast. And I don't know that China, China envisions that it could win an out-out naval confrontation with the United States, but it wants to make it wants to make the U.S. Navy think a little bit harder about intervening militarily. So it wants to strengthen its military position in the Asia Pacific, strengthen its economic position. But I do I do want to come back to economics. I think that China's hope is that it can essentially um, it can essentially exert an ever greater economic gravitational pull such that its neighbors, particularly its smaller neighbors, essentially go along with this. They defer to its strategic preferences on the recognition that their economies now depend so much on Chinese trade and investment that China can essentially, without firing firing a shot, China can go to its smaller neighbors and say to Vietnam, Cambodia, the Philippines and say, look, we, you know, we would hate to, we would have, you know, we would hate to have to uh, withdraw trade and investment and you know, look at look at the new roads that are being built and the bridges and the ports that are being built, and we would hate to have to withdraw that investment. So let's let's continue our good working relationship. And if China can, and 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 here's one of the concerns: there are many countries in the region. Uh, I would say most countries in the region actually that if they were given the choice, uh, well, first of all, they don't want to have to choose between the United States or China. If they had to choose, I suspect that they probably would like to partner with the United States. But they say, look. The United States is thousands of miles away. China is a geographical fact, and it's an enduring geographical fact. Uh, China's centrality to the region is growing apace. America's commitment to the Asia-Pacific over the decades has waxed and waned. And so we, when the United States gives us assurances of its, of its commitment to the region, we don't know how seriously to take them. And so if push comes to shove, I think that a number of countries will say, look, uh, even begrudgingly, they'll say, look, we have to ride the coattails of China's economic resurgence. We can't depend on uncer- we can't depend on flimsy uh, assurances of commitment from the United States. Um, and so, I would say that China probably hopes to restore its primacy, centrality within the Asia Pacific. Whether they will actually be able to do so is an open question. And the reason I say so is that China confronts an Asia Pacific that is very different from the one to which it was accustomed in centuries past. Um, in centuries past, China essentially uh, it enjoyed a tributary system, and uh, basically it was the the center in the Asia Pacific. Other countries paid deference, they paid drip, they paid tribute, and they went along with China's or the acquiesce to China's preferences. But now, China, while it is undoubtedly the the preeminent power in the the Asia Pacific, uh, with the exception of the United States, it is now surrounded by 
very capable, very uh, very capable economies, very capable militaries. So if you look at Australia, look at the so-called Quad countries. You look at Australia, you look at India, you look at Japan, and then outside of the Quad, you look at South Korea, increasingly Indonesia. Um, China is not going to be able to subdue the region unilaterally. And the I, now, and I think it's fair to say that while India, Japan, Australia, South Korea, and so forth, while they certainly will continue to strengthen their economic ties with China, and I don't think that I don't think that they want to go along with the Trump administration's protectionism. I don't think that they're going to go quietly into the night if China if China has a pretension to regional uh, preeminence and says it just we're going to subdue you. And so I hope that China I, I hope that China has that recognition. Uh, and again, I think that if China, forget about global preeminence, I think that it, frankly, even if China believes that it can just subdue the region and it can become the super the regional superpower and that india japan australia and other very proud capable confident democracies will simply acquiesce i think that china um, has another thing coming so there's a gap between what it perhaps proposes to do or hopes to do in the asia pacific and what i i realistically think it can achieve and and we should be clear uh, in the united states that while we don't want to be we need to be equally we need to be equally wary of Complacence and consternation when appraising China's resurgence. Uh, I, I've talked a little bit about the 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 uh, uh, seriousness of the China challenge and the multidimensionality of the China challenge. But China isn't ten feet tall. China has very serious vulnerabilities, and I think that we should take those into account when we consider its stated and or uh, when it's when we take into account its stated uh, desires for the region. China has a very unfavorable demographic outlook, and I think that we're, we only now are beginning to see some of the economic consequences. It has a very it has a very unfavorable geography. Whereas the United States is blessed by friends and fish, the China is surrounded by fourteen neighbors, many of which are very unstable and 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 politically volatile. It so th- there's the unfavorable geography, unfavorable demographics. Uh, there is the ongoing fact and presence of the U.S. Navy that, that is an inbuilt constraint. And frankly, uh, just there are many countries that don't want a Sino-centric hierarchy in the region. So I'm skeptical. I, I believe that China will continue to grow more powerful. I think that I'm, I, I'm skeptical that China will be able to establish regional hegemony. Um, but if the United States, um, if the United States uh, isn't able to send a more credible commitment of staying power to the region, then we do cede more long-term influence to the Chinese. Last question. Um, I think we'll wrap up with this, but when you look over the next, say, 12 to 36 months, sort of short-term time horizon, what are the things that uh, you, as somebody interested in China who does this uh, professionally, what are the things you're really going to be watching? So that's a number of a number of issues. First is how does um, how does Xi Jinping uh, just sort of manage domestic political? I shouldn't even say domestic political tensions, but how does he manage uh, tensions within his own uh, inner circle? Um, there are more and more reports. There are more and more reports by by China watchers suggesting that that Xi Jinping feels more isolated because he's been going on. I mean, he's been going on a very very uh, ambitious, you could call he calls it anti-corruption, but I, I anti-corruption campaign. But I, I think the most most China watchers regard his anti his alleged anti-corruption campaign is essentially a euphemism for consolidating his power. Uh, but it means that he he has been accumulating enemies. 
uh, over the course of his tenure, he relies on he relies on an ever shrinking circle of inner advisors, and so I will be looking to see whether he whether and how he continues to consolidate his power. Is he able to co-opt some of the enemies that he has accumulated? Is he is is his grip on power is it growing more stable or less stable? Uh, and I, I think that there are credible arguments on both sides. But I think so. so issue number one is um, how stable is his his grip on power. Issue number two, of course, how does he manage uh, bilateral relations with the United States? Does he, um, is the Trump administration, uh, is the Trump administration's pressure, the growing backlash to Huawei and ZTE, the growing global scrutiny of uh, China's human rights record, does that constellation of factors induce uh, substantial substantial uh, changes in in China? Uh, does China, you know, uh, embrace more market-oriented reforms? Does it does it open up? Does it does it allow more uh, escape valves for political dissent, or does China just double down even more? Um, and I think that the the hope from the United States from the United States's perspective is that if the United States is in, able to enlist a coalition of countries, whether it's Japan, South Korea, Australia, India, but, uh, and then also its partners in, in, in Europe, you know, France, Germany, and so forth. The United States hopes that if it can assemble a formidable coalition of countries that stand up and counterbalance China, that China might, China might not buckle, but that China might uh, adopt some changes to its behavior. So I'll be looking to see how, China, uh, how China's uh, uh, illiberalism at home evolves and also how its approach to how its foreign policy evolves. Um, I'll also be looking to see how China uh, China deals with North Korea. Um, will China essentially let the North Korean issue essentially sort of take a wait and see approach, or will it will it try to uh, will it try to basically get Kim Jong Un and North Korea to uh, to sort of to tamp down on developing continuing to develop its nuclear program, its missile program? In the and I I think the reason I mentioned that factor is that. I think that the Chinese have, or I think that U.S. observers have, uh, have tended to overstate the role, or overstate the degree of influence that China has over North Korea. So undoubtedly, China has a significant influence on North Korea, and it's, it's, it remains its principal economic patron and diplomatic patron. But the idea that China is essentially a puppet master, uh, it, it strikes me as being somewhat simplistic. I think that North Korea has demonstrated full well that when it wants to defy China, it can. And that it, that so I think that China is is nervous about Kim Jong Un, uh, but but China also recognizes how um, how uh, how much the the president wants uh, to to secure some kind of deal with with North Korea. And so China could China use the Trump administration's desire for a deal with North Korea to perhaps secure some economic concessions from the Trump administration. Um, so that's that's one last issue. And then I would just say more generally. Um, I would like to. See, I'll be looking to see over the next, you know, twelve to thirty-six months. Are we able to get some greater clarity on going back to one of your earlier questions? Are we able to get greater clarity on the contours of China's long-term strategic objectives, um, whether through statements it makes, uh, whether through actions that it takes? Um, are we able to get some more uh, clarity on those objectives, or will China's decision-making apparatus and its its ultimate objectives still remain something of a black box? 
Well, Ali, thanks very much for a, a fascinating conversation. Um, there's a lot to digest here. It's one of the ones that I always, you know, go back and edit the podcast and listen to them again when they're released. And this is one that I'm really looking forward to and just kind of hearing all this again because uh, there's just so much. I think there's so much that can that that can be said in in this conversation about a fascinating topic. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love it if you could take just a second and leave a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is a great way that you can help us reach new listeners interested in the types of topics we feature on the podcast. Thanks again.